Welcome to the latest edition of the LFC Delaware podcast. We are delighted to have Andrew Beasley with us this week, um, renowned statistician and uh, about all things Liverpool and more. Um, so we're, we're, we're again going to uh, hopefully talk a lot about a whole heap of stuff that's, uh, that, of insights which we on our own would certainly not have had. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, kind of how Andrew got into this space in the first place, um, kind of what are the things that he looks out for, and then maybe before we're done, we'll talk about kind of where we are with the current team and uh, and hopefully uh, evaporate any fears about us having lost the league in 2021 already. Um, so welcome, Andrew. It's good to Thanks, have you. Thanks, good to be here. Good, good. Um, so as, as usual, we're going to start with just a couple of quick announcements. Um, we've got... Uh, our annual meeting this week. Uh, Sean, remind everybody of the time and date for that. Time and date, it'll, it'll be uh, 7 p.m. Thursday, the 23rd. Um, and I guess, yeah, the, the club is required to have an annual meeting and there'll be election of officers and um, it'll be virtual, correct? Yes, and you can bring your drink if all of that sounds very dull. So it's a bit <laughs> more interesting. Uh, and then um, next, I think it's two weeks time, August 2nd, uh, we've, we've uh, rented a space in Bellevue State Park, which is in Delaware, for those of you who don't know. Um, and we'll be having a, a champion winning, socially distant, responsible party. Um, you can bring in grill and beverages. Um, so it's, uh, we'll, we'll share more information, but it's basically four o'clock, Sunday, August 2nd, to celebrate the Mighty Reds winning the Premier League. Okay. Enough for the announcements. So, Andrew, our, our usual starting place is to go as, back as far as, as our guests can in terms of where their first memories of watching, following, um, doing anything to do with Liverpool Football Club. Well, I picked it up from my dad because uh, he supports Liverpool. Um, we're not from anywhere near Liverpool um, originally. I'm from a town called uh, Kettering, which is... Um, probably about an hour north of London, sort of in the, in the East Midlands, um, for people who don't know the UK. So it's, it's kind of the middle of nowhere. There's no big teams near there. Um, so when my dad supported Liverpool, and so I sort of copied him, and it, it was, I'm talking about the late sort of 80s now, so it was a good time. Most kids at school supported Liverpool anyway, um, because they were obviously the best team at that point. So it sort of suited me to, to go along with that. Um, so, yeah, so I was, um, I was born in 1980. So earliest sort of memories, I remember the 1988 FA Cup final is probably the first game I can definitely remember watching the, the loss to Wimbledon, unfortunately. But um, yeah, that's when I sort of started around about that time. So um, good and a bad time to start, I guess, because obviously you, you start with the team while they're really successful. But then obviously, as soon as you discover them, you sort of endure a few sort of lean years um, but hey ho, that's that's how it goes, you know. No no problem with that. Um, so that, yeah, that's it really. Just sort of following in the footsteps of my dad. When um, at that time there was only one game a week on TV, and uh, if if it wasn't Liverpool, my dad wouldn't let us watch it. He wasn't interested. Good man. So it was kind of I had no choice. I wasn't going to support whoever Liverpool were playing every other week or whatever. You know, they won quite often, but you know. So um, it was basically Liverpool or nothing. So uh, thankfully, I chose Liverpool. Cool. The, uh, I was actually at that uh, that Wimbledon FA Cup final. All right, uh, and it's it's it, it, you know it's kind of weird how time sort of plays tricks on you. It, it seems hard to imagine that they would that 
they were so successful for so long and it was about to come to an end. And, it, and he, he, even losing to Wimbledon, didn't, it didn't quite feel like that. It just felt a bump on the, along, the, along the way. Um, yeah, it's kind of, kind of strange now looking back because it was it was talked up as this massive upset and one of the biggest upsets in the in the cup. And I guess it was to some extent because Liverpool was so dominant. Yeah. But uh, Wimbledon actually finished seventh that year. It's not like they were, you know, when Wigan beat Man City and got relegated. It's not as big as that. You know, Wimbledon was seventh. Yeah. They were a decent team, even if it was still a bit of an upset. But um, yeah, as you say, you, you'd have never guessed at that point how the next sort of 30 years were going to unfold. But you know, here we are. So, <laughs> fortunately, here we are. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. so, so w- w- tell me about kind of in terms of uh, when when you first got to uh, kind of get more connected to the club, apart from watching it on TV, um, like your first trip to Anfield, that kind of thing. What's um, when was that? Well, my first trip to Anfield was two thousand and two. It was the first home game of that season, two thousand and two three. Um, El Hadjouf, it was his home debut. He scored two goals. I thought, wow, we've got a, we've got a great star here. It didn't work out like that, obviously. Um, I had seen them before that. I went to the game at Leicester uh, the previous season, which uh, Robbie Fowler scored a hat-trick in, which was great. First game. And then like my hero of my teenage years scores a hat-trick. And it actually turned out that it was the last goals he scored for the club before he left the first time. I obviously didn't know that as it was going on. But yeah, so to see him score a hat-trick in my first game is just, you know, incredible. And it, I've kind of, I've had a bit, been a bit lucky on that front because I haven't been to all that many games in my life, maybe about, I think maybe 25 or 30 games, but I've seen him score a hat-trick. I saw Suarez score a hat-trick. I've seen Torres score a hat-trick. I've seen Origi score a hat-trick. Now that is a collector's <laughs> item. Um, so despite not being to, having been to all that many games in my life, I've, um, I've not been to any sort of classic games necessarily, but I've seen some good moments for some uh, some of the players. Yeah, most clearly you need to see more games, Andrew. Right. Let's, let's <laughs> yeah. Get on then. Yeah, right. I think so too. Yeah. I was thinking Mo Salah would probably have paid for your tickets if he knew this. Well, yeah, no, yeah, I've seen I've seen him score, um, but no, no hat tricks. I don't think he's got many hat tricks, but um, yeah, no, uh, more tickets would be most welcome if anyone's listening who can uh, <laughs> send some my way. Well, not at the moment, obviously, but uh, maybe next year or something. Hat trick guaranteed. You heard it here first, right? Well, it looks that way, doesn't it? So, so, so t- tell us tell us a bit about how you got into um, your. So, so I I saw that you were described yourself as a, a self-confessed stato or is that have got that correct uh, how, how did you get into that space I guess it was always sort of um you know uh, when I was a kid or sort of in teenage or whatever I'd study the, the 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 programs and who had scored the goals and the results and things like that because obviously at that time sort of in the 90s there weren't really stats like there are now beyond who scored the goals um and it just kind of, you know, I was sort of happy with that and things like that. And then when um, Paul Tompkins started the Tompkins Times and I joined that as a subscriber and um, just started to get involved with writing very small little articles, different little bits and bobs, fairly basic data and stuff like that. And then the thing that sort of sticks in my mind was in the summer of um, 2011. Yeah, summer of 2011. And, um, you know, football statistics were still pretty basic at that point. But one of the newspapers, I think it was the Telegraph, had a list of, of player stats from the previous season. Fairly basic stuff, but it had um, most chances created in the 2010-11 season. I was looking down this list and it was 
Stuart Downing, Charlie Adam, um, Jordan Henderson, you know, yeah. all these guys that Liverpool were being linked with. And I was like, okay, so these stats, they can tell us who Liverpool are going to buy, can they? And obviously it's, it's a bit more involved than that. But <laughs> noticing that sort of thing started me to get me more interested in the slightly deeper stats. And obviously what the data that's available has got deeper and deeper and better and better as years have gone on. But even at that early stage, it was like, oh, okay, yeah. These guys create a lot of chances. I can see why Liverpool would would sign them. And it, it sort of carried on from there, really. Mm-hmm. So, so clearly the season they joined Liverpool, they were no longer on that list. No, that, <laughs> well, you'd think that, wouldn't you? I mean, to be fair to Stuart Downing, you know, he gets a lot of, he gets a lot of stick and some of it is, is fair. But he created a lot of chances. It's just that the strikers didn't turn them into assists. So mm. people say he didn't get any assists, but he was still creating chances. He was bought to create chances and he created chances. You know, he wasn't perfect for the, for the team, but he was doing what he was bought to do. But obviously no assists uh, sort of counted against him in that, in that sense. But um, there's also the thing, they were, they were obviously, all those three guys were the top creators for their, for their teams at that time, for Villa, Sunderland, Blackpool. But then they couldn't all do that when they were all put in the same team, obviously. So their you know, numbers and stuff go down. But um, yeah, you, you could see from that why they were bought, even if it ultimately didn't work out for Adam and uh, Downing. And it obviously took Henderson quite a long time to get to where he has, you know. But you can see the logic in it at the time, at least. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, uh, this is probably a big question, but have we gone from uh, 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 basically a list of players who create chances to the sophistication of what seems to be behind the scenes, like in, in less than 10 years? What, what's, what's the progression been um, that's allowed us to do that? Um, I think... Obviously, a big part of it is hiring the guys that the club have, really um, smart guys, you know, PhDs in in maths and chess champions and a guy who was working on the Large Hadron Collider, I think, and and stuff like that. So um, whilst the stuff I can access is far more advanced than it was, the stuff that they are doing is going to be so much further ahead of anything that I can access just sort of looking on the internet, you know. I'm sure you've probably seen that there's been quite a few sort of news articles in the last year about them. I think there was one New York Times or Wall Street Journal, one of those uh, really interesting article. Um, And yeah, the things they're looking at are sort of way, as I say, way beyond sort of um, kind of expected goals, but for all actions and things like this and what a player is contributing. And I think um, uh, a good example would be somebody like um, Andy Robertson, you know, I looked at his stats, what I could access at the time when he signed, and they didn't look very good at all, to be honest with you. But obviously, he was playing for Hull City, who got relegated. They weren't a very good team. And a lot of what a player's stats will be is what they're doing, what they're being asked to do, and the team they're doing for. Now, obviously, the, the, the transfer guys at Liverpool were looking way beyond any of, of what I could see. And they were like, no, no, this, this guy's, um, you know, the guy to get. And they've, they've clearly been proven right. Uh, on that front um, so what exactly they're looking at I, I don't even know exactly um, but yeah I mean I, I, they're widely regarded as the, the sort of best in in the field and, um, and well Liverpool's transfer record in the last few years would suggest that they're definitely on the right track mm-hmm. yeah in the in the last 10 years and I'm just looking purely at, at you know the stats that that you or I might be able to access the xg the xg chain and so on has it been a gradual progression towards that or has there been a particular season or, or 
event or person that's responsible for maybe a, a, a leap or, you know, how, how is it that we, that we really got to the point of having the, the wealth of stats, even that, that people like, like you know, me, I would be able to access, not necessarily understand all of it, but <laughs> how, how has that, uh, how has that happened? I mean, is there a, a, a like a, a landmark moment? Um, it doesn't feel like it. I think it's been quite sort of gradual. I think around the time I'm talking about sort of 2011, 12, 13, there was a lot of people um, like myself, uh, sort of an analytics community, certainly on Twitter, who were trying to do interesting things with the fairly limited data um, that was available at that time. I think uh, it sort of started to pick up 2014. Um, Opta, the data company, had their first uh, forum, which they hold annually, uh, where people go and do presentations on um, sort of new types of, of analytics they've uh, developed. Um, so you could see sort of by going to that every year, as I did, fortunate enough to go, uh, you could see each year that things were developing and things were getting um, more advanced. And I think in terms sort of more websites and apps were springing up, obviously I think maybe, maybe who scored was one of the early ones, then you had the StatZone app, then um, obviously expected goals started to become a thing, people making their own models, um, myself included, very basic. There were much better ones than mine, but you know, people were starting to do that. So then sites like um, Understat started um, publishing the data. And now you've got 538 have a, a spreadsheet you can download with about 14,000 games of expected goal data from the last four seasons, uh, which they update after every match and all these different leagues and, and stuff like this. So I think it's been a gradual thing. I think because it's becoming more uh, well-known, I think more places are making this data available. Um, so it becomes a bit more prominent. Um, obviously over here, uh, was it two seasons ago, maybe three match of the day started sharing expected goals um, in their post-match stats, which um, sort of made it more of a thing. It's a bit odd in that they never discuss it. And also it's, when they bring up the match stats, it's below corners as if it's less important than how many corners a team has when it obviously <laughs> isn't. But, so the fact that they share that info is a step in the right direction. It would be good if they had somebody, um, uh, who, just if they talked about it a bit more, you know, people like Alan Shearer, um, as an example, might dismiss expected goals, but then say they'll show a chance and say, oh, he had to score there. But it's only assigning a numerical value to that. It's nothing, you know, it's not witchcraft, but, um, yeah, so I think it's all these sort of like little steps um, to get to where we are. And hopefully it sort of, hopefully it continues. And hopefully in five years time, we can all see what the Liverpool guys are doing because they've moved on to something even better, maybe. I mean, who knows? But um, yeah, it sort of felt gradual. I think being part of it all the way through, it's definitely felt gradual rather than a one specific sort of landmark moment, I would say. So one of the things we've talked about a couple of times on our podcast actually is the sort of, uh, I guess, the limited uh, quality of analysis that we see on a lot. So we, we get a different feed to you and mm -hmm. we get kind of ex-professionals will come on and, and pronounce, you know, in absolute terms the way something should be or not be. And, and there do seem to be quite a resistance or maybe it's maybe just a, they don't understand to, to talking about kind of meaningful statistics as opposed to kind of easy stuff mm. I don't know what your perspective is on that yeah I mean I agree um, 
By and large with that, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys ever see Monday Night Football that Jamie Carragher does with uh, Gary Neville. Occasionally. They, yeah, yeah. yeah, they um, often analyse, because they often analyse the games from the weekend before the Monday Night game kicks off. Um, and they do a lot of interesting stuff. And they, they include um, expected goals and other sort of various statistics that you, that you don't tend to see um, on Match of the Day. Um, I mean, certainly over here in the UK, they're the sort of two main ways of, of getting your football really is sort of match of the day and then uh, obviously Sky or BT. Um, it's like everything. I think it, I think it possibly will um, improve. I think, you know, once the next generation of pundits come in, perhaps who've played now when it's becoming more prevalent, they might feel more comfortable um, discussing it. You know, it wasn't a thing in, in Alan Shearer's time or, or whoever. So they, you know, they don't um, probably not so interested in it and, and things like that. Um, I think there's, I think there's a gap in the market for it, certainly. But at the same time, there's still probably the majority of football fans just don't care, which is presumably why Match of the Day doesn't um, look into it and stuff like that. But perhaps in a few years' time, you never know. Yeah, we we had uh, a few weeks ago. We we had uh, Neil Atkinson on, and, and I've heard him like interview people from other podcasts and other clubs. And the number of people who come on and say, "Well, I don't know what this XG thing is." Um, which is kind of fascinating given the, I guess, supposed to be the voice of the, the, the football clubs. Um, of course, he's big into XG, so. He's, yeah, um, I think he's a believer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they, so, so they, it's interesting. They, I'm, I'm going off of several tangents here, and I'll come back to your, your story before <laughs> we're done. But um, they, they use um, StatsBomb, uh, the mm-hmm. app. Um, and uh, so, so where do they fit in the pantheon of, of all of these um, stats providers? Well, StatsBomb um, is, is really interesting, actually. Their data, you can access their data on um, fbref.com. Mm-hmm. And they're quite interesting because they've obviously set up in the last few years. Now, Opt has been going for a very long time, kind of before anyone was really interested in data. And they had their set way of collecting things and things to collect. And obviously, because they've got all this data going back to the start of the Premier League, they kind of have to stay collecting the same stuff. Um, now, maybe they are collecting other things and it doesn't come out into the sort of public domain. But obviously, that, what they've been doing, they've been doing for a very long time, where StatsBomb have kind of started once people were interested. And so they started collecting slightly different things. Like, you know, the person getting credit for setting up the goal doesn't have to be the person who passed the ball to the person who scores. You know, it might be a dribble before that or, or something else. And all these little things that they're collecting um, and pressing stats, which is obviously of great interest to Liverpool fans like myself, because obviously that's a big part of how we play, um, stuff like that. So you, you can get it from them, which you can't get from, from Opta. Um, so, yeah, they, uh, they do a lot of interesting stuff. Um, and I think they've, they've sort of taken advantage of being able to set up later um, and sort of learning from what's gone before and then maybe slightly improving on it, certainly in some aspects. So um, the, you, you'd recommend taking a look at StatsBomb or do you think we would likely be just overwhelmed with, with what they are sharing? I mean, if you're interested in the data, it's definitely worth a look because it's different things to what you will find on um, the other places I mentioned, who scored in StatsZone and places like that. So it is definitely of interest to, to look into uh, to some of their stuff if you're interested in the data, yeah. I'm going to give someone else a chance to ask a question in a minute. But what, one thing that I think I'm interested in is what are some of the most irrelevant stats that people are collecting that we should always completely ignore? 
I'm not sure if it's what people are collecting so much as what people are sharing, particularly on the internet. Um, love people um, uh, off the top of my head would love to point out that Harry Maguire has made more tackles than Van Dyke this year, as if that makes him a better defender. You know, um, defensive stats are hard um, to work with anyway. Um, a lot of stuff what defenders do doesn't really show up in them, but it's that just you know someone will share that and it'll get retweeted by a load of Man United fans. And then a load of other people will say, this proves that stats are a load of nonsense. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't prove stats are nonsense. It proves that using them this badly is, 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 um, <laughs> is nonsense. So I think, I think most things that are collected can be of interest, but you've got to be very careful with how you use it. And obviously in the, in the rush for sort of retweets and likes and follows and things, people aren't really too bothered about that necessarily. But um, yeah. yeah, as I say, I think a lot of stuff that's collected is interesting. It's how you use it really. There's a fantastic example of that actually around United with the goal scoring, right? The, there's that yes, exactly. Thing about what Greenwood, Rashford, Martial have scored, oh, yeah. Salah, Mane, Firmino, and, and I, I love the the comments all made, which is yeah, but Liverpool haven't played any teams that are a Wi-Fi password um, because yeah, they've scored exactly. all these goals in the Europa League against teams you've never heard of. So, so. They also I saw a, a graphic from. Um, BT Sport talking about how many um, goal contributions those three players had, goals and assists, never mind the fact that they were assisting each other. So, you know, it's not 100 goals or whatever, because if you're assisting it, you can't have a goal and assist between the three players. That's only one goal. It's not two goals and things like that. So um, all these sort of things that uh, can trip people up. But um, yeah, I, I don't think it's, you know, they're three very good players, don't get me wrong, but I'm not sure it's quite comparable at the moment. No, no. Long, long may that continue. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so, um, Tim, do you have a do you have a question? I'm just here for scenery today. I'm not really a stats guy, but so <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> I have a question for you, Andrew. Um, so, obviously, Liverpool and FSG have have been uh, kind of pioneers in this advanced analytics uh, stuff. What other clubs, I guess, in the Premier League, but but globally? are sort of known to, to utilize this, this stuff, um, you know, in any kind of similar way that Liverpool does? I'm not sure if it's necessarily a, a similar way, but um, Arsenal actually brought, bought a stat company to kind of bring it in-house, Stat DNA. This was quite a few years ago. Um, I must admit, I don't know what they do, but I mean, clearly they are sort of trying to do something in the, in the sort of analytics field. Um, Having been to the um, OptiPro events that I mentioned earlier, the Opta events, there's always representatives from pretty much all the sort of major clubs. Um, but how seriously their work is taken, I think, is a, is a big part of the problem. You know, I think some clubs have analysts doing this work because they think they should. But if the manager or whoever's in charge of buying the players doesn't pay any attention, then it, it doesn't really... Um, it doesn't really mean anything. I think it's something else that's probably getting better year by year. But I, th I think some clubs uh, sort of do it for the sake of it. Um, there was a thing about um, Man United hiring something like eight analysts and having 50,000 scouting reports. But, you know, what use is 50,000 scouting reports? You want scouting reports on the, the sort of, let's say, 50 players you might buy. You know, there's got to be thousands in there they're not interested in. Um, Probably one other good example is Southampton. Um, they talk about having a, I don't know if they call it a black box or a bunker or something like this, but they have a little sort of anal analytical room where they can pull up loads of information on a player and not just their statistics, but 
you know, how they grow up, what their uh, social life is like, what's their social media presence, all these sorts of things to take um, account of, I guess, trying to figure out if the sort of player will be the right personality for them and things like that. So I think Southampton are, are quite big in that field. Um, then you had Leicester had a bit of um, success a few years ago when they're buying guys like Kante and Mares. They were scouting them from the, the French second division. Um, by all accounts, in quite a simplistic way, just looking like who's made the most tackles or something like that. But um, it seemed to work for them. I mean, if, that, if that's what they did and they got Kante, then, you know, more power to them, I guess, because nobody else got him. But, um, yeah, obviously, you know, things are, are more advanced at a lot of clubs. But, um, yeah, I, I, from my impression is that it sort of varies quite a bit from club to club. Mm-hmm. And we got a number of our analytics guys has poached them from the Spurs. I mean, I assume they've replaced them. Do they maybe realize what they missed out on or are they just turning away from that? Or, you, you know, any idea what's going on in Tottenham? Not particularly, I don't know. I mean, I know from uh, a couple of Tottenham fans I uh, follow on Twitter that they're not happy that the uh, Liverpool guys got away um, <laughs> and joined Liverpool. Um, I think it's, I don't know. I'm not sure... Mourinho's never struck me as the kind of manager who would put much faith in that. I could be wrong. I might be doing him a disservice. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what sort of happens with, um, with Tottenham. I mean, I assume those guys, the Liverpool guys were replaced. But, yeah, uh, I don't know quite how they're sort of getting on or what, or what they're doing exactly now. Yeah. I did read, actually, a piece about Mourinho and kind of where he goes next with Tottenham, not having access to a lot of money, basically saying that... Uh, that he, he almost feels kind of old-fashioned now in that he's got a defensive plan, but he's expecting kind of magic from his front players and somehow they'll, you know, ping off each other, whereas Klopp and Guardiola are, are much more systematic about the way in which they want the team to play. Um, so doesn't, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how it's going to work for him, but, you know, hey. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see. It. <laughs> Why? It doesn't. Right, right. I, actually, I do have a question about Stats DNA and Arsenal. What, what part do you think that played in them re-signing David Luiz? <laughs> Good question. If any, definitely. I did, tell you, I did say defensive stats were uh, hard to work with. Um, <laughs> I'd have to say it kind of played too much part, at least what based on what I've seen. But um, well, yeah, who knows? Well, doesn't seem like a sensible decision to me. But there we are. He's clearly improving. He didn't score a goal for us on the you know, on the weekend. And he, you can usually, uh, midweek, you usually can count on him for at least one. Or a penalty or something. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he, had a, he had a good game, I think, by his standards, certainly. Andrew, I did think of one thing. Um, when you were talking about looking at stats several years ago, um, when the club was looking to, to bring Henderson on and a few other guys, do you think that there is some sort of element that um, – where FSG takes the numbers, but also is going after unknown players. I'm just thinking about all of this Alcantara nonsense that keeps coming back up, where obviously his statistics are probably going to look pretty good because he's an mm-hmm. established talent. Do you think they're ever going to make that jump like the internet swears they're going to um, and sign established people? Or do you think we're going to stick with people you're like, I don't know who that is. And then two years later, he's a superstar. I would, I would be surprised if, they went down the route of signing the established guys. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to give, obviously everything at the moment is a little bit up in the air with the finances of the club and who they can get. And, you know, clearly they wanted um, Timo Werner and decided against it, um, presumably for the finance and stuff like that. So I think with things as they are, you can't rule anything out, but I think generally, no, they're not going to be signing 
guys like um, Thiago. I think, uh, you know, a big part of Liverpool's success um, has actually been that they generally sign players that don't get injured or don't get injured very much. Mm. Um, when you think, you know, it, guys miss games, you know, um, Fabinho missed a few, obviously Alisson missed uh, some games early on. But when you look at Firmino, Mane and Salah over the last three years, I mean, they've barely missed a game through injury. Um, so somebody like Thiago, who misses a lot of games through injury, I would imagine is an immediate sort of, that's a red flag against signing him. Um, so I think, I think their plan will always be, broadly speaking, by young um, upcoming guys. And hopefully they sort of reach their peak while they're at Liverpool. And if you can sell them on like they did with Coutinho, you know, all the better. Um, but at the moment, who can say it's, it's who's available and what money's, what money's there? You know, we could see some um, signings that we wouldn't have ordinarily. But um, if I had to say right now, I don't think uh, they'll be signing Thiago. No. We had a bit of chatting yesterday about uh, Saar, who plays for Watford. I don't know if he's someone that you've, you've looked at. Yep. But he, he, at some level, seems to fit the, that, the preferred Liverpool model. Yeah, uh, well, funnily enough, I watched your um, video with um, Sean Rogers uh, from okay. the Anfield Wrap, yeah. and uh, he mentioned Saar. And when he said it, I was like, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Uh-huh. Um, I think um, uh, Neil Morpé at Brighton as well is someone who looks good in the numbers. Um, it's quite interesting, um, you know, looking at the stats. If you wanted somebody whose stats are the same as Firmino, say you had to replace Firmino, right now it's Danny Ings. And, of course... Uh, He's been there before and, uh, you know, I'm sure they won't be re-signing him. But um, another guy who's, who's really good for um, pressing in the opposition uh, defensive third is Dom Solanke, again, who was on the book. So, you know, I think if you look at guys who can press in the final third, you, you probably, um, you're probably halfway there with signing a player who Klopp might like. So um, Neil Morpé comes up really good on those stats. Yeah. So, a bit uh, of a shithouse too, right? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. If you ask... Uh, <laughs> whoever it is, the Arsenal goalkeeper or whatever. But um, yeah, so somebody like him, I think, uh, yeah, or Saar, again. Um, yeah. So, you know, guys like that are still more who are more like the kind of players Liverpool might go for, I would think. Awesome. I'm realising that we kind of cut you short on your story. So let's go, let's go back to like, understand what's happened with you in the last few years. And then we'll, 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 we'll finish off by talking about this season and this current team and kind of, what, what we may have missed in terms of the, the underlying numbers. But, so so you, you worked with the Tompkins Times, right? That's where we kind of left that. <laughs> so what, what, who, who else have you been working with over the last few years? Well, that, I mean, when I was talking about that earlier, I mean, that was um, back when I was just kind of uh, doing the, the stat stuff as a hobby. Yeah. Um, I used to work for uh, a bank at that time. And yeah, uh, because I was on Tompkins Times, I, I would write a few bits for them. And I set up uh, my own blog just so I could post little bits and bobs on there. Um, and so that was all fine. I was sort of happy with it as my hobby. Um, and then in 2016, I was made redundant um, from my job at the bank. But I got, I got um, a redundancy payout. So I didn't have to find another job immediately. So I thought, well, now's the time to see if I can kind of go professional doing the writing. And basically, luckily, it's sort of, it's sort of taken off. Um, Tompkins Times then started paying me um, for articles once I was professional. And, uh, yeah, I got approached by the Liverpool Echo to write for them. 
Yeah. Um, but it's not just Liverpool stuff. I do uh, match previews for Paddy Power, who are a bookmaker over here, mm-hmm. um, and uh, stuff for various sites I've sort of done over the over the years. Um, I suppose Tompkins Times and Paddy Power are probably my two main ones, plus the stuff I do for Echo and um, Reach, which is the company that owns the Echo, but also other uh, local and national papers um, in the UK and stuff like that. So it, it, I'm not sure I've ever been uh, brave enough to just quit my job and, and try and go professional. But having been given the sort of freedom to try, um, I'm mostly glad I did because it's touch wood, it's, it's, uh, it's worked out. That's terrific. I, I do notice actually, so uh, coming from Liverpool, I always go back and look at what the Echo says about things. And if they're ever talking about stats, then it's a quote from you. <laughs> I don't know if that's, if that's completely true, but that's how it feels. Um, yeah, I guess it. I, well, I guess it might be. I mean, I obviously I sort of know the guys there um, now. I mean, only in an online sense, but I know the guys there now, and I'm, you know, they're, so they follow me on Twitter. So stuff that does end up um, either in something that they would write, or obviously I'm, I write my own stuff on there at times as well. You know. Cool, cool. Maybe they they should be a better source of tickets. Actually, just just saying. Well, I have I have asked in the past, yeah, but uh, no luck so far. So. Okay. Cool. That's that's great. That's great. So so let's talk a bit about this season then. Um, uh, we still don't know whether we're going to match last season's points total, um, but certainly for for kind of two thirds of the season, and Liverpool looked like the, it was almost impossible to beat them. What, what are the underlying numbers tell you about this season? Maybe compared with last season, or maybe compared with some of the other teams that they're uh, competing against. The underlying numbers are very good, as you would expect. Um, Liverpool are very good at creating chances and restricting chances for the opponents. There's been a lot um, written and said about how Manchester City probably have better statistics than Liverpool. And to some extent, that is true. You can't, you can't deny that. But what's interesting is when you sort of break it down, they, uh, Manchester City are phenomenal when they're already leading. Um, which is why they win so many games, 4-0, 5-0. They had an 8-0 against Watford. Liverpool haven't generally done that. Liverpool have been happy to get ahead in a game, maybe go 2-0 up. And more often than not, if nothing happens after that, that's fine, you know, because they'll, they'll win the game. They're not go, they don't go health leather every game like City do. So what happens when you dig a little bit deeper? You find that Liverpool have been a lot better than City when they've been behind in games, which hasn't happened too much. But Liverpool's underlying statistics are better than City's when they've been losing. Uh, which is why they haven't basically well, they haven't lost many games because uh, they're able to, to recover, whereas City haven't and they've lost nine games. Now, City have still had games where they've lost and they've had enough chances to win. Um, so they've been unlucky, I guess, in some ways um, in that sense. Um, but then, you know, Liverpool have had that recently. You know, they, they um, based on the, the sort of chances the team's had, they should have beaten Burnley and they should have beaten Arsenal. And instead, they didn't. But the fact is, you know, they got this deep into the season before dropping points in a game they deserve to win. Because if you look at the stats, you know, the draws at United and Everton were probably fair and they were abysmal at Watford and deserved to lose. So to have won the title and carried on and got to this point before dropping points in a game they should have won is, is incredible. I'd be surprised, amazed if it happened again next season. I mean, if it does happen next season, they'll win the league again because, you know, they have the chances to win pretty much every game. So doing that, but also winning every game is, is basically how they've, they've won the title, which sounds easy, but obviously isn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I did read something about the, the quality of the chances created, though, in the Burnley and Arsenal matches were not as high as as they had been across the other parts of the season. Is that is that true? Um, it might be. I'm not sure off the top of my head. I mean, against Burnley, we had a couple of clear-cut chances and we had three at Arsenal. So we had some pretty good chances. I think the thing is, there's, there's uh, for example, Arsenal, one of our best chances uh, was when Salah headed it uh, pretty weakly, just straight at the keeper. Yeah. Now, in isolation, that's a really good chance. But because he doesn't make much of it, it doesn't feel that way. But really, with that, in that position, he should be scoring and stuff like that. Um, I mean, it is true. It's always likely that the, the sort of average chance quality is going to be lower in games when you have about 20 shots, which they did um, in both of those games. Because when you're chasing the result, you invariably have more from, from long range, which are very low um, probability sort of chances. Whereas Liverpool have obviously tended to, to not be behind or chasing games too often. So they've tended to wait for the, uh, for the better chances. You know, it's if you look at the average quality of chance based on expected goals, it's gone up year on year every year um, under Jurgen Klopp. They sort of take fewer and fewer shots, but of, of higher quality each year, which, which is better. And um, you kind of see it across the board. I think, you know, the statistical revolution in football means that a lot of clubs do this now. They're sort of realising that, you know, shots from distance aren't that good uh, the majority of the time, you know, unless you're Fabinho occasionally uh, or Oxley <laughs> Chamberlain or someone like that, you know. But um, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, those two games they, they they probably should have won, but yeah, it's, it's they probably didn't have as many good chances as as they'd have wanted. But it is, it's not like they didn't have any either. They still they still probably should have won both games, really. Yeah, yeah. On the on the wider point about uh, I, I did read that uh, Liverpool have consistently gone down and down in terms of shooting from outside the the, the eighteen yard mm. line, uh, and that pe- people point to that game at Burnley that they lost two 0 where Coutinho yes. was was pinging the ball into the stands every like ten seconds. It felt like <laughs> yeah, um, which apparently drove Klopp crazy, is what I read. Uh, so. Yeah, I can imagine it did. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, what I'm picking up from what you're saying is that um, there isn't a great deal of difference between kind of how they're playing now and how they played before the break, um, except maybe they're, they're not working, um, they're not creating quite the quality of chance that they, they had when they were winning everything, winning every game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they've just become more... Um sloppy at the back as well. I mean, not so much the Burnley game, um, but obviously the Arsenal game, very clearly um, two uh, sort of howlers from Van Dijk and Alisson, which you just don't get very often. They, you know, they make one or two a season. Um, and uh, similar with the Man City game, it wasn't really a 4-0 uh, game, but we made some poor defensive mistakes. But again, I think that's one of those games you'll look, you know, you'll look back in 20 years and you'll just think, oh, Liverpool have been celebrating all week and lost 4-0. But while it was nil-nil, Liverpool were the better team. They had some good chances. They hit the post. You know, if they score first, I'm not saying they definitely win, but, you know, they probably don't lose 4 nil and stuff like this. So I think going forward, Liverpool have been broadly as good um, as they were before uh, the lock start, uh, lockdown, certainly before, apart from the Everton game where they didn't create a lot. But it's at the back where the, dif- where the mistakes are being made and that's what's, that's what's costing them. That's why they're dropping points in games they should. You know, the, the Burnley and Arsenal games, they might have won those games 1-0 um, earlier in the season because they wouldn't have given away fairly soft goals, you know. So, um, but well, the Burnley, goal was, Burnley goal was a little fluky and you could have called a foul on that header too, I guess. But uh, I, I've gone back and started looking at um, 
these statistics about like how how many goals you score and when you score and what the percentage is when when you know that you win the game. So like I think there is a stat around that like if you score first seventy percent of the time, you know that team wins the game or something. But yeah, right. I looked yeah. at it because it, because of this this I heard someone else talking about this. Um, being on the wrong side of luck, basically, because the performances in both of those games were very good. Um, but so they made the point that, you know, if you don't score two goals, you're sort of always at that at a risk of that. And I don't know if I, I haven't been able to find like what that comment was correlated to, but is it, mm. is it um, like you're at a higher uh, risk of, of giving up a result due to some fluke of the other team getting a, a random goal yeah. So if you score two or more, my guess is that the, the percentage likelihood of winning the game goes way up. Is that is that what it's related to, I guess? I don't know if you yeah, know. absolutely. And I mean, you can see evidence of that um, uh, this season because early in the season when um, Adrian was in goal, when Alisson was injured, and Liverpool didn't keep many clean sheets at all, but they kept winning games because they were only conceding one. Mm-hmm. And with the attack they've got, they've always got a, they should probably have chances to score a couple of goals. And um, I can't, I don't know the exact figures now, but I think when the title was won, Man City had conceded two goals in 11 games. I think Liverpool had done so in three games. And obviously Liverpool have done it a couple of times since. But the point was, if you, if you can, as soon as you concede two goals, you, you're really struggling to get a result. And obviously you can, um, but, you know, Liverpool beat Everton 5-2. Um, always good to mention that. <laughs> uh, but more often than not, if you can see two goals, you're going to struggle to get a result. That's right. Yeah. And, and Man City did that far too often, you know, this season, whereas Liverpool didn't. So when Liverpool weren't keeping clean sheets, because they were only conceding once, they were still giving themselves a decent chance of, of winning the game or certainly of not losing the game. I mean, it has to, has to have a big bearing throughout the first three quarters of the season, it, it almost felt like our backs were against the wall. <clears throat> and after last season, every point you drop is huge. Mm. So then you have this determination, this resolve, like the Aston Villa game comes to mind where we're trailing at 87 minutes mm. and go on to win it. And then after we get crowned, you know, it, all of a sudden you don't have that pressure. And I, that I'm not sure if statistics can can summarize that at all, but I really think, especially when you look at Allison and Van Dyke making these very uncharacteristic errors, how much yeah. of that is just maybe not in the fifth in fifth gear. Maybe you just back it up to fourth, and you know maybe you just don't feel like it's that absolutely necessary. Which so I don't. It doesn't really concern me, and I keep you know looking at the you know the fact that we've won it already. Um, but uh, yeah. you know, people are going to pieces over this. I'm like, look, I mean, honestly, let's put this in perspective. Yeah. Well, I think I think a good way to look at it, um, certainly like the Arsenal game. If you say you'd flipped it around and Liverpool had had three shots and Arsenal had had 21, 22, whatever it was, and Liverpool had won two one, you know, the Liverpool fans might be happier, but that would be a more concerning performance for me that we'd yeah. won a game where we'd been completely outshot by a team who were like eighth in the league or whatever. You know, that, that's what the, the stats can be good for. It's a bit of perspective on, on the results because the results can be determined by, as we've seen, slightly random moments um, or mistakes and things like that. And Liverpool are, are very good at not doing those mistakes. Um, you say about, is it borne out in the stats? I mean, not especially, but obviously they've been making more um, opt-to-record defensive errors and they've been making more since the restart than they did before, sort of per game. 
um, on average. Uh, so things like that are just evidence that they're just sort of not quite at it. I mean, I know personally, I mean, obviously the players haven't been trying to win the league for 30 years, but when you think of the pressure that they've been under, all Liverpool teams have been under to win the league. Any way to have done that must have been an incredible sort of mental release for them. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, I haven't been able to think straight for months. I'm sure they haven't. So I think it's inevitable that they're, you know, they're, they've not dropped off a cliff. They've probably dropped their standards by two or two or three percent or something. But that's enough that you can make you can make these little errors that all of a sudden you know the results go. But as I say, the majority of the performances since the lockdown, since the restart, have been fine. So. I've got at this point. I've got no concerns ahead of um, of next season, particularly. I think that's a, a very important point that, and I, I've thought a few times when I've been stupid enough to go onto social media and see what people are saying. Um, just that you know, everyone else is willing to throw the asterisk on the championship, and I'll say Liverpool's been performing poorly since the restart. Asterisk because they had three months off in the middle of the season and were worrying about dying. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, so I. I, t- I think I, did I maybe tweeted this the other day, but I think it sort of bears repeating. Um, in 1983, Liverpool didn't win any of their last seven games. Yeah. They crawled over the line and won the league. And then the next year, they won the league and the European Cup and the League Cup as well. Now, obviously, you can't be certain that Liverpool are going to do that next season because that's incredibly difficult. But the fact is, what happens at the end of the season doesn't really matter, you know. Um, and after we lost at City, I tweeted something about, you know, a, a strong Chelsea team lost 3-0 at West Brom, uh, and West Brom had nothing to play for uh, in 2015 after Chelsea had won the title. You know, nobody, nobody cares. I mean, I think people care a bit because there was the chance of a points record. Yeah. But ultimately, the aim of the season was win the league, and they've won the league, and a few other, you know, um, Super Cup, World Club Cup as well. So, you know, it's, 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 it's no problem. As I say, if the performances had been truly awful, I'd be more concerned than losing when... They've sort of been okay. They've not been great, but they've been all right, you know, all things considered. I think that's been one of the more frustrating things about the last two results is that they were actually two of our best performances overall. It, like you were saying, it, since the restart, it's just the finishing hasn't been there and, and there have been these weird errors, um, which probably yeah. does relate to that um, well, and, and you know, concentration, you know. Let's talk about Bobby should have had a goal in both of those games. Yeah but just missed it by a margin of inches. So, Well, I mean, I was, I was thinking as well, like if you flipped the results from this season, sort of home and away, so let's say we'd lost to Arsenal in the third game um, and we'd won at home against them 3-0 the other night, you know, people would, would be a lot happier than they are now. We'd have the same number of points. We'd have had the same results against the same teams, but in a different order. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, everything's fine, you know. Oh, well, we're not going to get the record, but we've got 93 points or whatever. So I think, um, obviously, it's sort of recency bias is, is, is the big sort of issue. But I think, you know, people who look at the bigger picture can see, actually, you know, they really couldn't have done much more this year. So, um, you know, yeah, there's nothing really to worry about. At the risk of opening a can of worms here, I tend to do that in most podcasts. Um, well, he says this, and then we're like, he's, not, he's going to mention Dave Van Lover. No, no, don't. Everyone's on edge, right? The suspense is killing you. <laughs> I love to see a, a statistic on the, and I know Paul Tompkins has spoken of it a lot, the awarding or not of penalties as yeah. it relates to Manchester clubs, uh, Liverpool, particularly at Anfield and in front of the cop. And, I mean... <laughs> 
clearly I think most of us here are at least a little biased, but I'd like to see some, some rock hard statistics that say, look, this clearly was the same situation, was awarded in this case, was not awarded in this case. VAR is little to no help unless you're a Manchester club, it seems. The number of Manchester referees that get assigned to Manchester games and of course, you know, the, the only Liverpool, the only Merseyside ref can only, you know, uh, ref the derby. I mean, yeah. is, is there a way to put this into concrete facts and, and, and present it as something has to be done? I guess it's quite hard to um, be, provide any sort of proof on that front. I think what's interesting, if you look at the number of um, touches in the penalty box that teams have and how many you know, penalties they've had, I think the average is about a penalty every 200 touches in the box or something like that. And um, Man United have been getting one every 76, was it? Or something like that. And Liverpool are at about 300 or, or something. I think when you look, I mean, I haven't seen every um, all of United's penalties this season, but the majority I've seen were probably correctly awarded. I, I don't think they necessarily get too many, but I certainly think that Liverpool get far too few. Probably most teams get far too few. Um, which is sort of favouritism in it to United in a way, just kind of indirectly. You know, they're getting what they should get, whereas, you know, it, it seems most other teams um, aren't. But, um, I mean, obviously it helps them out. Um, but Liverpool won the league and have only had five penalties. Man City only had four penalties last year and won the league. So it's, um, it's not the be-all and end-all, but a few more would be nice, obviously. Um, I mean, certainly that Burnley, Burnley game's a perfect example. You know, Liverpool weren't great. They were all right. They weren't great. But they should have had a penalty with about five minutes to go. It looked to me, looked like Robin, uh, Robertson was taken out of the box. Yeah, he thought yeah. so. Okay. Um, but as I say, proving all of this sort of statistically, I think, is, is sort of very difficult. But there, there definitely seems to be something weird about how, you know, Tottenham can get two penalties at the cop end in one match and yeah. Liverpool have had two in, I don't know how, how long now, a few years probably, but... Yeah. The, the yeah, issue, the real issue I had with the Burnley game was that they didn't even review it. They didn't even stop the game to review it through VAR. So it's it, like that to me. That's been the biggest problem with VAR. It's not even necessarily what they award. It's when they choose to review things. Like, how, how do you not review those those two penalty shouts that we had in that game? And I yeah, guess they're only it, supposed to be constantly reviewing it in the booth. But I, you know, it 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 doesn't make a lot of sense. Actually, Charlie, I think we need to move your can of worms op- over to rabbit holes because I do <laughs> feel VAR penalties. Oh, my goodness. How long could we go on about this? Right. Yeah. I am conscious of the time. I know there was a couple. Of, I do want to kind of do once around um, for reflections from this week. But just to kind of wrap, wrap up, Andrew, again, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. What, no what, what, what would give you concern about going into next year uh, was, was my final question. I suppose really just that it's incredibly hard to to do this for sort of like a third season running as we've seen with Manchester City. Um, obviously they got 100, they got 98 points and now they're going to get 81 at most. Um, obviously Liverpool 97, hopefully 99, but somewhere in the 90s. Um, you know, to, to do that three seasons in a row as, as hasn't been done. And it's going to be a big ask to do that again, particularly if they don't um, freshen up uh, the squad and again as sort of talked about already but you know I wouldn't say Liverpool have been lucky but clearly generally winning games they deserve to win 
uh, is hard to do. And, and they, they may drop points they don't deserve to next season. And I think, I don't think the, I don't think Jurgen Klopp or the club or the players will sort of lose their heads over that. I think people on social media inevitably will. Um, you know, Liverpool, I can pr- probably state with quite a lot of certainty, Liverpool aren't going to win the first 27 of the first 29 games. I just, you know, no, there's a reason no one's done it before. It's because it's incredibly, it's incredibly difficult. And obviously, while if they did sort of similar to Man City and, you know, did 81 points or whatever, that's still a pretty good season. It's not going to be enough to win the league, obviously. Um, and obviously, I, you know, I won't be devastated if they don't win the league now that they've sort of finally done it. But clearly, it'd be, it would be good if they're in the running for as long as possible. Um, and also have another good crack at the, at the Champions League. But um, yeah, I think my biggest concern is not that they'll fall off a cliff, but it's just that it's shown, you know, teams don't get 90 plus points three years in a row. So can they be the first is, 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 is a big ask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it sounds daunting the way you've laid that out. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to go around. Um, let's, let's start with Sean. What, one thing you saw this week that caught your attention about the Reds? Uh, I thought uh, for the uh, trophy lift presentation, I guess it's, you know, we're in, in the pandemic and, and uh, there's no fans in the stadium. So, you know, one of the, I guess, I thought kind of cool things they're doing is that they're able to actually remove seats for the trophy lift presentation in the cop. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool, you know, trying to, uh, make, uh, some lemonade out of the lemons we've been served. So. Right. <laughs> of course, that's after Wednesday's game, upcoming Wednesday's game, right? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Charlie. Uh, uh, Afkin Kenwa, Af- Afkin Kenwa, uh, probably mispronouncing his name. Um, that was really, uh, really Aki. enjoyable. Sorry. Aki. Akin Fenwa. Okay. Aki. Uh, yeah, the re- really cool where he had the the interview after uh, you know winning promotion to the championship and and the only person he wanted to hear from and, and party with was Klopp and uh, and apparently they did catch up and I thought it was very classy that Klopp refused to divulge what it was that was said. Um, just really enjoyed uh, you know partying with uh, with with a, a true Liverpool fan. Uh, wore the Van Dyke jersey to practice and got a <laughs> decent uh, hefty fine. Which apparently was halved after they won promotion. <laughs> so that was cool. And, and Jurgen, if you're listening, feel free to WhatsApp any of us. We'd be very <laughs> happy with that. So, um, Tim, what, what have you got? I'm going to go to the gutter and bring up a stupid transfer rumor that I've been reading about this morning. But uh, I, I've read a bunch this morning that uh, Liverpool are maybe interested in Nordi Mukiele, who's a, an RB Leipzig guy. Um, who profiles very similarly to Trent, um, predominantly a right back, can play defensive midfield, can also play center back. He's 21 years old from France, uh, or a France national anyway. Um, it got me really excited because, you know, I love my Leipzig. And uh, the, the one article I read was suggesting that were they to sign someone like him, it could be to play him at right back and advance Trent up a bit or vice versa and keep Trent at the right back and advance Mukiele up a bit. Um, so it, it would, it would be kind of a wild card. Um, and he's a great young player. So. Not going to burst yeah. any bubbles on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew, what caught your eye this week? Uh, well, I'm going to talk about uh, just briefly something um, kind of personal actually is um, I got a new mug, which I'll hold up to the camera. Oh yeah. Oh, very nice. Nice. Now, oh. 
it may not seem that special having a new mug, but um, uh, I used to have a mug from the last time Liverpool won the league and, and I lost it or it broke, I can't remember. And I, I sort of said, oh, I'll replace it when Liverpool win the league again, Think, not thinking it would be 20 years after I lost the last one, but I'd have to wait. So to be able to finally order an official Liverpool champions mug and it arrived this week uh, is definitely the Liverpool uh, highlight of the week for me, has to be. It's got the asterisk on it. Is that? What? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've checked out the um, club's official merchandise, all about the the title. But uh, yeah, they've totally embraced this asterisk thing. That's I think great. they're trying to own it yeah. rather than have it thrown back in their face. Yeah. So not everything um, has got the asterisk on, but there's a lot of the merchandise has, uh, has got it on there. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's, that's, that's nice. Actually, I'm also wearing my uh, champion shirt today. There you go. Can't yeah. see it on the camera, but uh, yeah, feels feels very appropriate. See uh, this. Up. My go- my gold is uh, complete, and I have my uh, the Premier League gold Premier League badge. On oh, okay, wow, all right. I'll nice. pull it down. That shirt must be heavy to wear now with all of those. Very guys. heavy, <laughs> very heavy. So I'm going to close on one little thing, picking up on something you said, actually, Andrew. I I I, I read that Sunes actually had said this week about that 1983 season. Um, yeah. they, they basically lost every game and the last game they played was at home and it was going to be Bob Paisley's last game. And, you know, Paisley, arguably the most successful you know, coach in the history of, of English football. Um, and he said they, 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 met, they, they were going to win this one for Bob and the best they did was a draw, I think it might have been against Aston Villa. He said it was yeah. really, you know, just it was hard to, it, that, even that wasn't enough motivation after they had already won the league to, to kind of go out and, and, and win just one more game because it, it didn't matter that much. Um, th- I thought that was fascinating. And on that note, again, thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for everybody else for their contributions. Um, and we will see you next week if you stay till the end. <laughs>